Hi, and welcome back. Today I'm talking with Jerry Laundrie. He's a history and English major, and he's actually been a podcaster for four years this summer, which is pretty incredible. And he's the podcast host of the Presidencies of the United States. And that podcast has been running since January 2017. As you know, I interview anybody who's passionate about their topic, from academics to students, scholars, amateurs, podcasters, and so many more. Not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, and I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Let's learn more about some U.S. history, hey? Today we're talking with Jerry, and he has a really different topic that we've actually never discussed here. So I'm very excited to have you here, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Did you want to talk about your topic today? Absolutely. So um, what we're going to be discussing today is the second president of the United States, John Adams. John Adams is somebody who doesn't always get quite as much attention, as, and in particular his presidency, because he's preceded and succeeded by such pivotal figures as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, respectively. So I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to shed a spotlight on what I think was a very pivotal and interesting four years in American history. Well, absolutely. I mean, as I told you, I actually know nothing about him, really, beside the fact that he was a president. <laughs> so um, did you want to place him in history, perhaps, and just give us an idea of where he fits? Absolutely. So John Adams uh, was originally born and lived in Massachusetts on the eastern seaboard. He was born when Massachusetts and the other 13 colonies were still part of the British Empire. John Adams played a pivotal role in the American Revolution. Uh, he was a member of the, the Continental Congress. He helped Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence. John Adams, just like Jefferson, um, served as one of the first diplomats abroad representing the United States. He was the first U.S. minister to Great Britain. And Adams and Jefferson, they are typically talked about together because they forged a strong friendship during their time abroad, and ultimately both of them became involved with party politics or, or factional politics whenever they came back to the U.S. Their friendship soured. They didn't talk for quite a while, and part of that is related to what happened in Adams's presidency and the aftermath, but they eventually, once both of them were no longer president, they started up a new correspondence, and their letters are seen as a great epistolary collection nowadays um, because they talk about a wide range of subjects, and they forged a strong friendship again in their later years. But going back to Adams, focusing in on him a little bit, so John Adams Whenever he came back from serving as U.S. Minister to Great Britain, he became the first vice president of the United States under George Washington. 
And he served in this role for eight years for uh, Washington's entire presidency. And when it came time for the election of 1796, Washington was approached about serving for a third term, but he declined. He said, I want to retire. I want to go back to Mount Vernon, his plantation in Virginia. And so Adams was seen as a kind of natural successor to Washington. Um, At the time, the vice presidency really didn't have that much of a role, especially considering how we think of the vice president nowadays as being kind of a, a key part of the executive branch. Adams, in his role as vice president, was more focused on the role of president of the Senate, so he would preside over the Senate proceedings. He really wasn't that involved in the Washington administration, but he was still seen as being this revolutionary figure. He was still seen as being somebody who had a long history of politics and diplomacy. And so he won the election of 1796. But the way that the system was set up at the time uh, with the Electoral College, which is the mechanism by which we elect the president, at the time, there wasn't a differentiation between a vote for president and a vote for vice president. The person with the top number of votes became president, and the person with the second highest number of votes became vice president. Well, the second highest number of votes went to Thomas Jefferson, who by that point was in opposition. You know, they formed basically two factions, uh, the Federalists, which was more pro-administration, pro-Washington administration. So Adams was a Federalist and Jefferson was the leader. And they didn't really settle on a name They're sometimes called the Democrats. They're sometimes called the Republicans. They're sometimes called the Jeffersonian Republicans. On my podcast, I try to call them the Democratic Republicans just to differentiate them from the modern political parties. But Jefferson was the leader of this this other faction, and he was going to serve as Adams's vice president. So on March 4th, uh, 1797, both of them were inaugurated. George Washington retires, and Adams takes up the presidency. So when we look at this system, we actually see that it's quite different than the British system. So how long did it take before their new system got going, if you will? So it actually took quite a while. Um, The Declaration of Independence was in 1776, and the first attempt at crafting a new government was the Articles of Confederation, But the Articles of Confederation, it established a very weak federal system. Uh, Basically, there was no um, federal judiciary. There was no executive branch. There was just the what was called the Confederation Congress. Congress, the legislative branch, had certain powers. But even within that, it took so many states to agree to do anything that very little was accomplished They struggled with being able to carry out foreign policy because nobody could really agree on on what to do. There was no centralizing figure to direct efforts. And so the economy was in shambles. The United States was struggling just even in trying to keep together because there were so many competing interests. 
So some of the leaders of the time decided that something needed to be done. So a convention was called, met in uh, Philadelphia in 1787, and this convention came up with the modern U.S. Constitution. In the Constitution, it established three branches of government, so the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. It provided for a much stronger government, and in particular in the executive branch, which when they were thinking of the office of president, they were thinking of George Washington. George Washington was there at the convention. He was serving as president of the Constitutional Convention, and they saw Washington as being this exemplar of what a national leader should be. And so they crafted this office with him in mind. So that was one of the things when Adams became the second president in 1797, it was it was a big shift because people just envisioned George Washington in that role. And even though Washington established that the presidency was not going to be a kingship, and in his retirement, he affirmed that, people still just kind of felt that George Washington was going to be president for the rest of his life when he stepped down and you've got John Adams. And, and especially like in so many ways, physically, in their appearance, in their approach, they were two vastly different men. You know, you have George Washington, who is this tall Virginia aristocrat. And then you've got John Adams, who's um, short, you know, he's this New Englander. He's not as well polished. And John Adams has kind of a reputation for sometimes, you know, losing his cool. And so you have these two varied figures. And then, you know, Washington's gone. And here you got Adams in what was seen as Washington's role. And that was one of the big struggles with his early presidency because he was living in Washington's shadow. Everybody expected George Washington's style of leadership, and John Adams was never going to be George Washington. He struggled with establishing himself as a president in his own right in making the Adams presidency something distinctive and not just a continuation of Washington's. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, because, you know, two people could run things very differently. So do you know what his personal life was like, if he was married, how old he was, just to give us an idea of where he was in his own life when he became president? Absolutely. So John Adams had long been married to Abigail Adams. Um, Abigail was also from Massachusetts. Abigail Adams is a fascinating figure in American history. Um, if you haven't studied her, highly recommend it. Um, she took very seriously her role as wife and mother, but she also made a point of having a, a distinctive viewpoint. She was very well read. She loved talking with John and, and their relationship. We get so much about their relationship because, unfortunately, for so much of their marriage, and especially in some of the earlier years, they spent it apart. John would be at the Continental Congress. Abigail would be at home in Braintree, raising the kids, taking care of the farm, um, taking care of business affairs. Then John went abroad, first to France and then to Britain. 
And again, this separation, finally Abigail and um, some of their children did go and join him in Europe. But we have this amazing correspondence between the two of them, and their relationship is very much a partnership. They would have times where they would have jokes, and and they would talk about kind of gender roles of the time. But by and large, you get in their correspondence that they really did have this great respect for one another, and John had a great respect for Abigail. Abigail ended up, while he was president, she was one of his key advisors. You know, they talk about the politics of the time. She would keep up with the newspapers. Sometimes she would be even more upset than John about what they were saying about him, about things that were going on. But they had this great partnership. So at this point in their lives, um, they're both more advanced in age. Their kids are all grown. Most of them have had children at this point. And so when they get to Philadelphia, so at the time, Philadelphia was still the national capital. Uh, Washington, D.C. was still being constructed on the banks of the Potomac. When they take over at the president's house in Philadelphia, it's really just them. They do have, they'll occasionally have some of their kids that will come and stay for a little bit or some of the grandkids. But they're really the ones that are living in the president's house in Philadelphia. When we're looking at his start as the president, you said he had a different style from Washington. What other challenges did he face during this time? Were there any um, historical things happening that we might want to be aware of? Yeah, so at the time, there were actually quite a few things that were happening that did have a major impact on Adams's time as president. So first of all, domestically, um, like I said, there was this strong partisan divide, a strong factional divide. Political parties at the time weren't necessarily as we think of them today. They weren't really that organized, but there were these divides. There were people that were seen as being Federalists. There were people that were seen as being the Democratic Republicans. And they had very strong divisions. It was increasingly becoming divided. And part of it had to do with foreign affairs. So with the Federalists, the Federalists were really more aligned with the British. And this is like Alexander Hamilton, John Adams. uh, Most of the people that were associated with the Washington administration were Federalists. They felt that we needed to maintain a strong relationship with Great Britain. They saw it as a natural relationship because, you know, these were all former British colonies. They already had those connections in terms of lineage, in terms of business. And so let's just go ahead and restore those and keep up our trade. At that point in American history, a large portion of American trade was with Britain. So it made sense from that standpoint. But then you have Jefferson and James Madison and the Democratic Republicans who were really bitter towards the British. You know, they had taken to heart kind of this animosity from the revolution. Meanwhile, in France, there had been the French Revolution. And Jefferson had actually been in France, still serving as U.S. minister to France at the time. 
He was involved in the early stages of the French Revolution, and so he still had this ideal of what the French Revolution could be. As we had been allies with the French during the American Revolution, we had inspired them to rise up and do their own revolution, to throw off their monarchy and create this republic. And it was very much an idealistic view of what the French Revolution could be. And Jefferson, um, while he had served in Washington's cabinet, had pushed for stronger relations with France. And they continued along those lines. But as events happened, and especially with Britain and France being at war, being opposed, it became kind of in American domestic politics, you know, who did you side with? Did you side more with Britain? Did you side more with France? And we were actually having our own conflicts with the French government of the time, the directory government. Because of numerous reasons, there had been some events during the Washington administration that had helped to sour our relations. Like we had a French minister come over who was basically trying to draw us into the conflict with Britain. And so the Washington administration issued what's called the Neutrality Proclamation that, no, we're not getting involved in a war between Britain and France. You know, we're, we'll trade with both countries. We're not going to step in and say we're with one side or the other. And it was mainly because at that point, the United States wasn't ready for war. Our army was minuscule. There was no Navy. And we were still trying to recover economically. So it wouldn't have benefited the U.S. to go to war versus being able to maintain trade with our two largest trading partners. But there continued this attempt to try and draw the U.S. into war, to use resources from the U.S. in this war. Um, Actually, in the 1796 election, the French minister to the U.S. at the time actually tried to interfere in the presidential election to benefit Thomas Jefferson. It failed, but... This was still kind of known that he was actively trying to influence U.S. politics. And so there was just increased animosities. Meanwhile, the French government was pretty upset with us because even after we had issued the neutrality proclamation, a year or so later, John Jay negotiated a treaty with Great Britain. And it was the source of much contention in U.S. politics and, again, this increasing divide in factionalism. But the French government saw this as, well, you just said that you were going to be neutral and you're signing this treaty with Britain. What gives? That's not neutral. You're giving them rights that you're not giving us. And so when John Adams takes office, this is kind of where the state of of domestic politics and foreign relations are, it ends up shortly after he takes office, Washington had designated a new U.S. minister to France, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Pinckney arrived in Paris and French government refused to accept him. And at the time, that's one of the things that I think folks struggle with a little bit with the early republic to understand, like, When something's happening on one side of the Atlantic or the other, it generally takes months before 
the word of it will reach the other side. So it's shortly after John Adams takes office that they get word that Pinckney has not been accepted as the U.S. minister, which is basically a break in diplomatic relations between the two nations. So John Adams has to figure out, okay, well, what do we do about this? And that becomes one of the first things that the the Adams administration is charged with doing. Um, one thing that Adams also struggled with, and you know, I had mentioned this lingering shadow. You know, he, he was in the shadow of George Washington. Beyond just the example of Washington, John Adams also inherited George Washington's cabinet. So this was the first peaceful transfer of power from one president to the other. So there was really no precedent as to what to do about the cabinet. Adams saw, and especially considering that the cabinet members that were in place, you know, they had been chosen by George Washington. At this point, they were pretty well connected within the Federalist Party. He thought it would be more of a hassle and may hurt him politically if he got rid of them. So he was like, I will just keep Washington's cabinet. If they were good enough for George Washington, they're good enough for me. Well, that ultimately became one of the greatest problems of the Adams administration because these cabinet members, so you've got uh, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, Secretary of War James McHenry, Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. They are more aligned with Alexander Hamilton, who was the first uh, Secretary of the Treasury, but he still... He was still seen as a, if not the, party leader of the Federalists. And they would ultimately start reporting to Hamilton, who was out of government, and kind of getting their some of their marching orders from Hamilton versus the president. This created a huge divide within the administration, and it hampered Adams's ability to be able to govern, to be able to address the problems that were increasingly coming um, because he didn't have any support within his own administration. You really see how party politics were, you know, starting back then, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess when John Adams became the president, there were a lot of moving parts, as you've pointed out, so overseas and domestically. What did he do domestically and what did he do overseas? What were some of the things that you wanted to highlight? Because I know you say he's a bit underappreciated for some of the things he's done. So what were some of the things you wanted to highlight? One of the things that, and and really what even I think John Adams would say was his biggest achievement in office was preventing the U.S. from going into an all-out war with France. So... Adams's first approach was diplomacy. He sent a special commission over to France to be able to talk with them, try and work out some of the issues between the two nations. Well, the problem was whenever they got there, the French foreign minister wouldn't meet with them. Instead, he sent agents to talk with them. And it was really like informal agents. These weren't necessarily people in the French ministry. They were just, you know, a friend, an associate, whatever. But when they approached the ministers, the special commissioners, they basically asked for money. They said, you know, if you'd like to meet with the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, we're going to need some money. 
you know, that's how things work. And at that point in diplomatic circles, that was like greasing the wheels was seen as just something you did, just part of the process. But the American ministers, none of them had really been involved in these diplomatic circles before. And so they they were taken aback. They were like, what? We've got to pay you money to try and talk with you? No, we're not doing that. When they come back um, to the U.S. and, and they send their dispatches back reporting this, there is a huge uproar. The American public and political leaders are highly upset. I mean, it's seen as being disrespectful. You're just saying that, you know, we just need to give you whatever you want and we need to pay you for the privilege of having diplomatic negotiations. No, if we need to go to war, let's go to war. So you see this big push for war and Congress starts passing bills to be able to, you know, strengthen the army, to ramp up the Navy, really trying to get the nation on a a war footing. John Adams realizes that there are problems with that. A, it's going to take a while. B, it's really not that likely that the French are going to send ground forces to the United States, especially considering, you know, they're still fighting a war with Britain. They're still fighting other wars on the European continent. They have issues down in the Caribbean, um, including what we now know of as the Haitian Revolution. All this was going on. So he's like, they're probably not going to do that. We do need to ramp up our Navy. And ultimately, what's dubbed the quasi-war, which is an undeclared naval conflict, that happens during Adams's presidency, it is naval conflict. And so Adams was very correct at, at pinpointing what the real issue was. But there was still this push in terms of his party for war and for ramping up the army, which the, the figurehead leader of this new army was George Washington. But Washington was in retirement. He was older. He wasn't able to really command the forces like he was in the Revolutionary War. So he deferred to Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton, by this point, was seen as John Adams's rival for control of the party. And Hamilton had ambitions of becoming president himself, it's seen. So Adams is very reluctant to do this ramp up and to really go to war. He sees just how many problems this is going to create. So he ultimately has to fight his own cabinet, but exerts his authority to send a second peace commission to France. And this second commission is able to resolve the issues diplomatically. But again, with the problem of how long it takes for news to travel, they don't learn of this peace until after Adams has already been defeated for re-election. But Adams sees this as his greatest legacy, that he was able to prevent the nation from having to go into another war. And potentially, I mean, if we had gone to war, might we have lost? Who knows? Um, Adams wasn't willing to take that chance. And so that peace was what he saw as his greatest legacy as president. Um, But like I said, we did have some naval conflicts at the time with French ships. And this is where, this is kind of the first feather in the cap for the U.S. Navy, because even though 
you know, the French Navy is is seen as being, it, it, in terms of size and armament, much larger, much more powerful. The U.S. Navy is the one that really comes out on top. So the U.S. only lost one warship during this. And, and it was just, it was more like minor skirmishes, like they would find a ship, attack, things like that. Um but the U.S. only lost one warship, while the U.S. Navy captured numerous French ships, including um, in February 1799, the USS Constellation defeated this French frigate, uh, Les Sergents, and it's seen as being this massive victory, and it, it proves the worthiness of the U.S. Navy. And it helps to establish the U.S. a little more, uh, to have a little more gravitas on the world stage that, you know, these aren't just plucky upstarts anymore that, you know, this is a nation that is possibly worth having at the table and possibly worth taking seriously. So Adams only had one run for his term. So I guess four years, is it similar to what it is now? Exactly. So it's still, and and that's one of the things that um, has not changed in the U.S. Constitution. A president is elected to a four-year term. And so Adams was up for re-election in 1800. And again, the system, it was different than it is nowadays. But basically at that point, in in 1796, there hadn't really been as formal of a um, establishing candidates. But in 1800, there's this push in the Federalist Party that, okay, not only do we want to say that Adams is our choice for president— But we also want to say who we would like as vice president. And so they put forward um, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney as their choice for vice president. Likewise, on the Democratic-Republican side, um, they put forward Jefferson as their choice for president and Aaron Burr of New York as their choice for vice president. But again, the Electoral College, each elector cast two ballots, but it wasn't designated which ballot was for president and which one was for vice president. And so in 1796 and previous elections, they had made sure that there wouldn't be a tie. Like the electors would converse amongst one another, um, and it was through letters. Uh, They didn't really necessarily come together and cast their ballots. Um, But through letters, through connections, they would establish, okay, well, we're going to make sure that we're going to throw this vote to make sure that nobody's tied with George Washington. But in 1800, all of the Democratic-Republican electors cast one vote for Jefferson, one vote for Burr, goes into the pot that ultimately um, is counted by Congress, and they realize there's a problem. Jefferson and Burr have tied. And again, it doesn't designate which one is president and which one is vice president. So it ultimately goes to the House of Representatives to decide whether Thomas Jefferson or Aaron Burr would be the next president of the United States. But John Adams is completely out. There's no way he is going to become president for another term. And that's the thing, like you you get to the end of his term and you're finally seeing Adams being able to establish himself as a president. At that point, so his original cabinet, like I said, they were kind of working against him. And 
Alexander Hamilton has a role to play in the election of 1800. He publishes pamphlet, which goes on and on and on about how awful John Adams is. And here he's supposedly in the same party. Like the Federalist Party is pretty split when we get to the election of 1800 between supporters of uh, Hamilton, who they're dubbed the arch-federalist or the high-federalist, and then the Adams supporters. Alexander Hamilton publishes this lengthy pamphlet which talks about how awful John Adams is, and then at the very end it's like, well, even though he's awful, you should probably vote for him anyway. But by that point, you know, everybody's just, you, you've just spent all these pages talking about how awful he is. So, no, we're not going to vote for him. Um, Adams ended up having to get rid of the original cabinet members. James McHenry was the first to go. Uh, Timothy Pickering then went shortly after. He was able to start replacing them with people that were better aligned to his viewpoints and more willing to work on his behalf and to recreate kind of what the cabinet was under George Washington. Under George Washington, the cabinet served as close advisors and they really tried to establish a central idea and a a central goal, um, a central viewpoint. But in the first part of the Adams presidency, the cabinet members had their own agendas. They weren't working for John Adams's agenda. And so once he's able to get some people in place, including uh, John Marshall, who ended up becoming chief justice, he was able to really execute more of his policies. But by that point, it was almost too little too late. And when you're studying the Adams presidency, that's one of those what if moments, you know, what if John Adams had refused to accept Washington's cabinet? What if he had people in place who were working for his agenda, working for the administration from the very beginning? What might he have been able to achieve? But in this, it also establishes that precedent because, you know, never again in American history to date Do we see a president, even if you're succeeding from the same party, they don't retain the same cabinet members? If they do, it may be, you know, one secretary or another, but the entire cabinet is never retained again. And presidents are seen as having this authority and having this leeway to be able to establish their own independent, their own cabinet, their own administration, and their own right, not just having to accept the one from their predecessor. So knowing that he was the second president and that he was trying to find a better way to be a president, meaning like not exactly like Washington, what were the main things that he changed about the administration or as you were talking about in the cabinet or, you know, different things that would have been changed from Washington to him. Well, and one of the things, you know, as I was going through the Adams presidency on the presidency's podcast, one of the key differences that I saw between Washington's approach to the office and Adams's approach to the office, George Washington was a strong leader, but he also recognized his shortcomings. He recognized that there are certain things that he was not as adept on. 
personally, he was good at business, but he didn't necessarily understand all the intricacies of the financial system of the nation. He knew some about diplomacy, but he had never been abroad. He had met with people from other nations, but in the U.S. He hadn't actually gone to France and England. And so Washington really relied on other people. He really relied on his advisors. And at times he would defer to them when he just really wasn't sure. John Adams, on the other hand, he had this extensive and and broad knowledge background, uh, educational background. He was well experienced in diplomacy. He had worked during his time in the, the Continental Congress. He had been involved with establishing the Continental Navy. He knew some about the um, the intricacies of how government worked, of how diplomacy worked. And so he didn't rely quite as much on his advisors. He would consult with them. But ultimately, John Adams was willing to go out on a limb and say, you know, I hear that all of you are saying this is an awful idea, but you're wrong. And I'm the president, so this is what we're going to do. I think, you know, you see a couple of moments of that with Washington, but you see it much more so with John Adams. And it really does kind of change the course of the American presidency, because even after Adams, you still have a little more um, thinking of kind of that maybe the president should be one amongst equals in the cabinet. But John Adams really establishes himself as, no, I'm the president. I don't care if the cabinet completely disagrees with me. I'm the one who ultimately makes the decision. And you see this play out time and again later on in American history. And Harry Truman is famous for having his little placard on his desk. The buck stops here. That was Adams's philosophy. He he believed that the president was the one who would ultimately answer for the success or failures of the administration. And so he was the one who was going to be the final arbiter, that he was going to be the one making the final decision. So I think that that is an important legacy and an important distinction, you know, and it was part of, I think with Adams doing that, he had to do it much more than George Washington did because George Washington was already established. George Washington was basically that era's equivalent of a superstar. Everybody knew George Washington. He was well-renowned. He already had established in his own right this respect, this level of, of hero worship. John Adams didn't have that. The only authority that he had was in that title. The president was in that office. Whereas George Washington, he was president, but by and large, he was George Washington. That's where his authority came from. John Adams really established that the authority is not with the individual, it's with the office and the presidency. It almost sounds like a monarchy, even though he said he didn't want to run it like a monarchy. It feels like it's, you know, a king and his advisors. It's just sort of a different spin to it. Or am I completely off track here? <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting, and, and that's part of the reason why... To me, the Adams presidency is important is in establishing that the 
the authority is in the office. Um, if George Washington had retained the presidency, who knows what would have happened once he passed away. And he actually passed away in uh, December 1799, so during John Adams's presidency. But if he had still been in office, I don't know that we would necessarily have the succession of the presidency that we do nowadays. There, there may have been calls for a, a Washington family member to assume the presidency, or, or there may have been disputes amongst who was really the, the successor to Washington's legacy. But John Adams establishes that the office, and once a person is out of office, once a president is out of office, the power stays with the office, not with the person. And I think that's the key distinction between kind of a hereditary monarchy versus the presidency, because it really does become even though this is a figure that is a leader, it changes. And especially like you see in, in 1801. So ultimately, the election of 1800, it goes into the House of Representatives. And after some political wrangling, it's a long, convoluted story. But Thomas Jefferson ends up becoming president. Aaron Burr becomes vice president. So on March 4th, 1801, Thomas Jefferson is inaugurated as the third president of the United States. So in 1797, we saw the first transfer of power from one president to the other. In 1801, we see the transfer of power from one president from one political party to a president of another political party. And it's a peaceful transfer. It didn't necessarily have to be peaceful because there were people on both sides who were saying, you know, what can we do to make sure that Jefferson, because, and again, like thinking of this factionalism and, and it was really kind of this ingrained fear of, oh my gosh, um, he's completely radical. Our nation will be destroyed if Jefferson becomes president. What can we do to keep him from the presidency? On the pro-Jefferson side, you see also this kind of irrational, they're going to do everything they can to keep us from um, taking the presidency. And you even see um, at the time James Monroe was governor of Virginia, you see governors writing to one another and, and talking about, well, do we need to call up the militia? Do we need to march on Washington? Do we need, what do we need to do? Um, to make sure that Jefferson becomes president. But ultimately, Adams says, no, we're going to have a peaceful transfer of power. And so that morning, he leaves Washington, D.C. At that point, the nation's capital had moved to the new federal city. John Adams boards a stagecoach and heads back home to Quincy. He voluntarily leaves, no muss, no fuss, and says, Jefferson is the president. It was a point that they didn't really know how this was going to turn out. They really didn't know what the nation was going to look like with Jefferson as president. But the institution and maintaining that institution and maintaining that he was a legitimately elected president by the Constitution. And so the authority went completely to him. John Adams retired. He went home and he stayed there for the rest of his life. And that is one of the things that 
nowadays the, the peaceful transfer of power is seen as a given, but it wasn't then. I mean, there are so many points in the early republic where people felt that everything was just going to fall apart. It was all going to end in chaos. But this faith in the idea and the institution of the presidency, it is one of the greatest legacies of this time that we can have rule of law. We don't have to have violent conflicts to see a change in government. We can see a change in government by our votes and by our participation in the system versus having to go to arms. So looking at this really peaceful power transfer and sort of um, almost a template for how to do it properly or how to do it later, was there anything else that can be added to this that John Adams was a part of? So it really is like kind of looking at it from the level of the president and having that peaceful transfer power. But one of the things that I focus on in my podcast is all the layers beyond, you know, that the presidency isn't just about one person or even about the one office. There's so much else that goes into it. And so even though that was a peaceful transfer of power at the very top, there were disruptions in kind of the administrative apparatus for a while after that, because, yeah, it's great that John Adams says, oh, well, he's going to peacefully transfer power. But what does this mean for all the other people in the executive branch? And at that point, like even postmasters, you've got uh, treasury officials at the ports. What does this mean for all those people in those posts? And what does it mean for the the judicial branch, which are appointees? They're confirmed by the Senate, but the president initially nominates them for office. What does this mean for all these other parts of the government? And one of the things that um, Jefferson and his supporters uh, criticized Adams for was at the very end. So there were new judgeships that were established by the outgoing Congress, the Judiciary Act of 1801 that expanded the federal judiciary. And Adams said, well, I'm still president and these are vacant posts, so I'm going to appoint people to them. Well, the Jefferson folks were like, you're out of office. You know you're not going to be president after March 4th. Why are you still appointing people? So the appointments went through, the Senate confirmed them, but they hadn't actually sent out the commissions yet. And the commissions were sitting in the State Department when Jefferson and his administration took charge. Well, the Jefferson administration decided, no, we're not going to hand over those commissions. We're instead going to appoint our own people to these posts. And so this ends up um, becoming a case that goes up to the Supreme Court, Marbury versus Madison, which even though... The commissions ended up not going out. Marbury versus Madison established one of the largest precedents in American judicial history, which is that the Supreme Court has the right to judge the constitutionality of laws, of actions by the federal government. It's seen as being a pivotal moment in judicial history. But then also um, Jefferson had to really think of, well, how do I approach this? Do I go ahead and clean house and appoint all of my people, but that's going to further inflame the factional tensions? Or 
do I leave some people in? Do I really try and, and make this more of a fair and just system? And that's ultimately what he goes to, even though he has advisors that are saying, oh, well, just clean house. You know, we've made all these promises. We've, we've got all these people who, because they supported you, they want an office now. But Jefferson said, no, we need to be fair about this. And so he established kind of his own criteria for removing people from office. And it's kind of the start of this conversation that carries on through presidential history of what to do when a new party takes power. And it ultimately becomes this spoil system. It becomes a point of corruption. It becomes a point of very much discontent. And we end up establishing more civil service rules to say that, you know, the postmasters, those people in the lower positions will stay in place regardless as to who's in power, you know, they're not going to have that direct influence over those offices. But here are the offices that a president can change over and they can remove folks from. It's a fascinating point and um, it's a long story that we don't really have time to go into today. But those questions about, you know, we have a transfer of power, now what? I think even to the present day, we're still kind of asking those questions and still refining it. And that's one of the things that I love about studying the American presidency is that we're still trying to get it right. And we're still trying to improve upon things. And hopefully in the long arc of history, we're ultimately heading towards a more perfect and a, a better system than we had in the past. And so I think that Adams and Jefferson in this transition had a key role to play in that. It does kind of sound like they've developed a good baseline for how it should be, or as much as possible for how it can be. Exactly. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, you're so passionate about this. So how did you get interested in studying American history, and particularly in the presidents of the United States? And also, how did that lead you to starting your podcast? So I've always had a fascination, uh, you know, as long as I can remember, with history and with American history. Growing up in Louisiana, you have the French influence, and, and especially um, having grown up pretty close to New Orleans, you are just seeped in history. Um, with presidents, again, it's one of those things that I remember from a very early age. You know, at that point, we still had encyclopedias, and so I would you know, I'd hear a name or something, and I'd go and look it up in the encyclopedia, and then that would lead me to another topic. I'd pull out another volume, I'd pull out another volume, and I'd end up having, you know, half the encyclopedia out on the floor as I'm researching history. And I always tended to come back to the presidents, and you get these fascinating figures. And with presidential history, there are some widely varying characters in presidential history. And so it's always been one of those things that just interested me. And um, it was about, it was a while back, like 10 or 15 years ago, I decided that I wanted to read a biography of each president from the very beginning. And I set some criteria, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that it was a full biography, not just on one topic or just on the presidency, but really, you know, their entire life. And I ended up doing that, successfully read through biography of each president. And then it came to kind of what am I going to do from here? Now I've got 
all this information. And I already had some knowledge of presidential history, but that was really my first seeping into, you know, really taking that deep dive into presidential history. And ultimately, my husband suggested, you know, have you thought about podcasting? And so I, I did. Um, I started podcasting. My first podcast was actually focused on the ninth president, William Henry Harrison, who really, if anybody knows William Henry Harrison, it's because he had the shortest presidency to date, uh, one month, and he ended up dying after that month. But Harrison, I have always enjoyed hearing about him and, and learning about him. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, we'll see where this goes. So I started the Harrison podcast. Then we had the uh, 2016 election, and I had friends and colleagues and asking me questions about what does this mean in terms of presidential history? What does this mean? Um, what can happen here? And so I realized that I wanted to go back to the beginning and take this deep dive and take the audience on a deep dive through U.S. presidential history from the beginning. So January 2017, I started the Presidencies podcast, and I'm now on my third series in it, um, which is in the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. The series are rather lengthy and detailed, but to me, that's where you get the really interesting stories, and that's where it really becomes this office and this history isn't just facts and figures. It isn't just names and dates. It's people, just like us. Getting that connection, that human story, that's what keeps me going as a podcaster, and that's why I love to be able to share with the audience. Yes, you absolutely get into the meat and potatoes <laughs> of each person, which I, I really enjoy. Um, it's true, historical figures, we see them sort of either on a pedestal or not, but we sort of see them in a different view and we forget that they're human and they have lots of pros and cons, if you will, throughout their presidency, monarchies, whatnot. So very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I usually ask this question, and if you've heard my podcast, you know what's coming. If you had a time machine and you can go and be very safe to come back, you can either partake in or just observe, where do you think you want to go and what do you want to do? Oh, gosh. Well, and it's one of those things like you always, as a history geek, you try and think of, oh, well, where would I go in history? And so much of history is the conditions are so different from nowadays. Well, and honestly, um, and this actually goes well with the subject, um, one of the probably cheeriest moments in Adams and Jefferson's lives, and both of them felt this way, was their time together in France when they were both diplomats there, and especially whenever um, Abigail Adams came over and a couple of their kids, they established kind of this social circle and really enjoyed one another's company, really enjoyed great conversation. So I'd have to say I'd like to go and be with them for a day and just enjoy that conversation, that conviviality, just to be able to see them in action and hopefully you know, have something to add. <laughs> oh, that's such a great answer. What a wonder to have a historical moment in like an ordinary setting. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, Jerry. It was really fun. I had such a great time learning about John Adams, even though I, as I said, I don't know much about U.S. presidents. So this was really enlightening. I appreciate all the time you spent here. Thank you. 
Excellent. Oh, this was fun. Well, I'm happy you had fun. This was really fun. And same here. I'd like to thank Jerry for coming on and talking about John Adams. And I encourage you to check out his podcast, Presidencies of the United States. You should be able to find it on all the platforms. Thank you so much for being a guest today. A crazy fact that I forgot to ask him to mention was that he actually has a U.S. presidential history database from his own research, and it has over 85,000 entries. So I think if you have a question, you should absolutely contact Jerry. He is an incredible fount of information about the U.S. presidents. And of course, don't forget you can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at History There's also my website, historya.com. And it's a really big help if you're able to rate the podcast on your podcasting platform because apparently it helps people find me. So I really appreciate your effort. And as I always do, I want to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and everybody that's helped me in adventuring through history. It wouldn't be possible without you. Un grand merci.